You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the games begin. Hey, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm John Wellborn, and today we are joined by David Weck. He's the inventor of BOSU Balance Trainer and the new Weck Method BOSU Elite, the RMT Club, and other products. He is an inventor, athlete, avid rollerblader, and probably one of the more interesting people we've had in Power Athlete Radio, and that is saying a lot. Um, he is trying to solve some really amazing problems and has gone deep. So if you're ready for a three hour podcast where I might get two or three words in edgewise, which I know you're going to laugh and say it's hard to believe, but he's a talker and has a ton of information and probably one of the cooler podcasts we've done in a long time. So buckle up, put your seatbelts on, put it in your seats in the full upright position and prepare for David Weck. Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm John Wellborn, and I'm joined today by David Weck. What's going on, David? Well, I'm super excited to be on this podcast in particular, and I think it's a fantastic strategy to do this one. And then when I'm down in Texas, that we get together in person and you know really drill it deep. And this is a precursor to that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I you know, it's um, it's pretty interesting. I know we exchange DMs on social media, but we've never talked, so it's a pleasure to meet you. But uh, pretty interesting how uh, you kind of popped into my ecosystem, especially with like the WEC boards and the slants and me looking for a solution training, you know, six blades Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighters who, you know, you're friends with Shanji. So it's kind of a interesting piece that, you know, Shanji approaches me to work with his young fighters. Uh, one thing that was really bothering me was just the lack of rigidity in their ankles. And I, you know, went to go look for Polish boxes and some of the plyo tools that I would use to kind of create better rigidity in the ankles and stumbled onto your uh, slant boards and have been using them ever since with great results. So thank you very much. Yeah, well, that that's a really interesting um, training tool. And it basically, years ago, I had found the sweet spot on the BOSU dome that approximates that same setup where... The big toe is the highest. The outside heel is the lowest, creating this cock the spring can't collapse effect. But the inside heel is lower than the outside ball of the foot. So we're getting this like cross X that sends your weight where you want it to be and perches you there. And so what you're able to do is just that. I mean, we're talking about millimeters, microseconds. Uh, you know, that's the difference in live action play. Um, so to the extent that you can harness the skeletal structure with the least amount of compensation and resistance gives us the ultimate land load launch phase that everything played on the ground is contingent upon that exchange to deliver and then receive and express the most force and the least likelihood of injury. So, and, and it's a patented angle so i literally have like a, a patent on that on oh, that i know setup. i i like when i ordered them i went through all kind of the deal because what i was doing is um <clears throat> i uh i weld and fabricate and build trucks and just you know build all the stuff around here so i went in the shop and i started building these polish 
boxes, but I couldn't find anybody to give me like, what's the drop? What's the size? What's the angles? And, uh, you know, I'm like, uh, you know, so we started setting them up at like 45, 35, 25 different degrees. And the one thing that I was, what I liked about your system was the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu kids really lack dorsiflexion. Like it's, it's yes. one of the most interesting things I've seen. They're hypermobile in their hips, usually hypermobile in their trunk, um, you know, especially in the thoracic spine. And then, uh, you know, obviously they got great flexibility in the knees, but like the ankles, like we started testing them and they were really struggling to squat because they had zero dorsiflexion. And I'm like looking at this. And then as I saw them move, they're always in kind of this open footed jujitsu stance. They don't really sprint. They don't do more conventional movements that we would do to kind of force uh, dorsiflexion like sprinters. So that was like a huge issue because I needed to get them into a, you know, knees over toes, vertical shin angle position to make them more efficient in their squatting and their pulling. So it just was one of those things where I'm like, oh, I haven't seen this type of dorsiflexion ever. Or lack well, and it's really, it's really interesting. I, I have a, like just such a privileged situation that I, um, I know Shanji and Salo uh, very well. And um, I met Shanji back in, I think, well, I met him years ago, but then I worked with him in 2017 and, you know, he says, Hey, Shanji run across the room and okay, Shanji, here's how we coil the core. And Shanji was able to interpret that on the mat. So he was able to sort of decrease the radius of rotation by that, that spinal adjustment because he's the expert in application of jujitsu. Yeah. But he's also, uh, an incredible athlete. Um, Sean, yes. he is, uh, yes. he's an incredible mover. He moves well in like on his back, all planes of motion, you know, X, Y, and Z. I mean, he's extremely athletic. Um, and yes. his, his, you know, jujitsu, it's like short, it's powerful. I mean, he's just, I mean, there's a reason he's one of the best to ever do it. No, you know, hall of famer. But, um, the right. one thing is, is he's more the exception than the rule. So the other jujitsu players are working with all have excellent jujitsu, but not that base level of athleticism that Shanji brings to the table. So he kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes, what do you mean? This stuff's so easy. And I'm like, yeah. uh, you know, now you have the curse of the gifted, which I'm sure you've dealt with very often where you bring in the world's best athletes. You can't design a system off of those guys because everything they do is easy and they just are natural movers. Yeah, it's the bridging that we want to do. So, you know, and unless you feel something, you, you can't target it. So it's all about the feel that is real is what we need. You know, if, if you haven't tasted orange juice, all the words in the world won't do it. You just got to take a sip. Sure. And what's interesting about Salo and Shanji is you had sort of the, the ultimate yin and yang, where Shanji was the yin and Salo was the yang. And what made Shanji just so exceptional was dealing with his brother. Yeah. And to, to deal with that amount of pressure gave him, you know, like the ultimate training partner yeah. where, you know, Salo is incredibly athletic as well. So, and, and Salo has that mercurial, like, I'm going to choke you. <laughs> well, uh, um, so, uh, I don't know. Do you know Tom Inkladon, human performance specialist? Cousante, he's out in Arizona. He's like uh, the guy I, that does I, all the blood work on everybody. I met him years ago at a Mike Mahler um, seminar. Okay. So, uh, Tom and I, uh, he's done my blood work, 
you know, twice a year since 2001. I've known him over 20 years. And, you know, I didn't trust NFL docs. I just didn't trust a lot of what was happening to us in terms of the medical at the NFL. So I went outside, I found Tom and he did uh, all my blood work and always did all my micronutrients and supplements. And uh, he's kind of the go-to for that. But he worked with Salo and Shanji in like 2009. So when I started working okay. with them and I met them, I called Tom. He's like, I know Salo. And his first comment was, uh, Salo is an absolute buzzsaw. He's the best. He's like, we went out, we drank every drink. We tried to fight everybody. Tom's like, he's the best. And then he was like, and, and he's like, and Shanji's pretty quiet. And I know Shanji. I'm like, he's, he was the quiet one. He's like, oh yeah, you should see Salo. So I, I get the, uh, uh, the yin and the yang comment. Uh, yeah. So how, like, I'd love to get into a little bit of, uh, like not only the history and how you got here, but also really explain the WEC method. Um, as I was going through it, uh, I understand because this is what I do, but I don't know if the layman reading it is going to understand biomechanics and rotation and coiling and, you know, the, the fact, you know, this cross patterning. And I think it's fascinating and would love to just hear it more in a, more in a simpler, just kind of layman's terms. Um, basically I, I wore fight and flight today. It's one of the shirts that I have. Um, and what I did was I, I sort of began with the end in mind once I invented the BOSU ball. So my, my target was I want to be the world's foremost expert on the subject of balance measured by locomotion. And what I like to do is I like to go back to the, to the origin to try to get at first principles and then use my imagination of what would I do in that circumstance. And if you go back far enough, I think the most logical way to interpret it was that it was sticks, stones, and ropes. So the first essential tool was the stick. So that's what allows the hominin to, you know, let go of the branch, break it off and carry it. So the big cats, you know, can't get me on the ground and you sharpen it and you get right to the point. Suddenly you can catch the rabbit and the big bad wolf turns into a dog. So rocks are also highly, you know, high utility, bludgeoning, opening things or whatever, sharpen a rock. And now you have a, you know, real useful weapon as well. And then the cordage is what leverages that, uh, those two components, ties them together. And suddenly now you're projecting sticks and projecting stones with exponentially more force and accuracy. So, and even there's an addle addle where you use a stick to launch a stick that gives yeah. you that extra leverage. My, so, uh, my buddy Rob Wolf, um, was on a TV show. I think, uh, they did some like paleo kind of deal and he, uh, he killed, I think a thousand pound elk with an atlatl. And, uh, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, yeah. yeah it was crazy because the Boone and Crockett people were like, we think that might be the biggest mammal taken with an atlatl in the last, like since the last ice age. But his like ability well, to I mean, lawn dart that stuff was crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, if you hit it, you know, in the right spot, and you have the range and distance, well, okay, you know, you you have superior firepower, manpower, um, and the story that inspired me the most was David and Goliath, because here you have, um, you know, the ultimate underdog. And, I, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is a great author. A lot of his books have been pivotal to sort of really cutting to the chase and understanding certain phenomenon. But his story of David and Goliath, I think, is just crazy. Like, if you're going to play that scenario out, right, you know, you're Ridley Scott, you're making the movie. 
you don't make Goliath an oaf who who can't see and needs to be guided down to the battlefield. I mean, it's uh, just I know exactly what you're talking about. I've I've listened to Gladwell uh, or Malcolm Gladwell's take on uh, um, David and Goliath, and he was like a, had giantism and couldn't see and all the other stuff. I thought it was funny. <laughs> it's just insane. I mean, just tell a better story, dude. Yeah. And so here you have this, you know undefeatable force who, you know, standing down the army for 40 days, David comes up to the front. He hears, Oh, you get a pot of gold and the King's daughter. Like, Oh, really? <laughs> I'm going to be rich and royalty. Well, I'll kill him. <laughs> and then they try to dress him in armor saying, no, 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 you, you, you don't have a chance. He's like, no, you don't understand. I kill lions. I kill bears. Right? Because if you're tending after your family's livestock in the form of sheep, well, the minute a lion gets one, you're going to get them all. So you got to stand down the threat. And I was, I met Buddy Lee in 2004 in New York City. We were both presenting at a conference. And Buddy, for anybody listening, is, you know, one of, he's, he's an A-plus athlete, you know, Olympic wrestler. And with a jump rope, he can dazzle you with the jump rope. Uh, like nothing and, I've ever seen before with Buddy Lee. We even had the Buddy Lee jump ropes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Buddy gave me his speed rope, yeah. the one with the metal handles, right? It's not the one with tricks. You can go faster. And what I recognized was, wait a minute. If I don't jump through this thing, I am forced to rotate, and now I can learn on beat. So hands down, feet down, everything up, both down, both up. Whereas a jump rope, when you jump through, there's a syncopation to it. Yeah. So that's more of the float like a butterfly, change your feet, you know, not change your center. So I can go from power stance to power stance, you know, in a flash. And it's a very useful skill. But for an athlete, on beat is more important. Rotation is more important. And I don't beat myself up. So the number of reps that it's going to take to ingrain that skill is a lot of reps. Unfortunately, you can you can aggregate a huge number of reps in a relatively short amount of time. And what I had learned back in high school was that both my 40-yard dash and my vertical would go down the more jump rope I would do. So I, I call it sort of pounding the power out of yourself with this low oscillating frequency. And especially if you're not doing it on an optimal surface, which you know, a sprung NBA basketball court or a dance sprung wood floor, that's like the sweet spot. I don't think there's anything that resonates better with the, you know, just the structure of a human body. And so what I did was I said, okay, I, literally the night I got off the airplane and I was doing a lot of THC back in that day. So the THC, I, for me, I think it reacts differently for different people. For me, it was fire that I was able to cook with. It was fire that burned. As well. uh, I, I have the exact opposite. I'll fall right asleep and I'll be laying here and I, <laughs> I don't need any help sleeping. So it's not my, really my deal. So, Right. Well, I don't do it anymore because I need to preserve my sanity. You know, I'll wait for the mystery <laughs> later. Yeah. But what it would, it would electrify me. Like it would just like, you know, like, I mean, my canines would get sharper. And I, you know, I just got that like predatory sense that, okay. And so I said, all right, 30 days, I'm going to get just as good as Buddy Lee, right? Which won't ever happen, but <laughs> 30 days and I'm going to master this thing and I'm not going to jump through, I, you know, maintain that discipline, res 
resist the urge to jump through the rope. So I was 30 days of intensive. The Bosu royalty allowed me to, you know, what day is it? It don't matter, right? I mean, you know, I, I, had, I had an income that was 100% passive. And so I was able to devote the time necessary to hypothesize, explore, adjust, master. So I got very good with the rope and just the attenuation of two hands, two feet, you know, head, neck, core with a rope connecting it is there's four fundamental patterns that will emerge. And it's all these spirals with the distal extremity that have consequence on the proximal body. And so what happens is you fine tune that cheetah's tail capacity that and, and I recognize that, oh, this is my key to martial capacity. So now suddenly I got sticks where I can perform the calculus and math, the mathematical movement of them. Just I can calculate those far faster because it's all lower brain for me now. And I became formidable via that path. So, and I do jujitsu now because, you know, on the ground, I was a fish out of water. And so now, you know, sort of learning that aspect but the rope and then but what the antecedent to the rope for me that sort of set the stage for it was the staff and so what i did for a few years prior to getting the rope was i did the manipulation of the staff so i learned how to you know pronate supinate and the staff just like a rope it just represents the truth you're getting a constant feedback that will never lie to you so it attenuates you to perfect the more you manipulate it. And the advantage of the rope is the quality that you get with the rope is more fluidity and constant. You're, you're wired. Like, you know, one hand speaks to the other hand and it knows in real time, can you hear me? Not quite. Pay attention to me. Okay. Got it? Yes, I do. So the non-dominant side levels up. And for me, the name Bosu, because that was my first, you know, invention that was a big hit. Um, it was the name came from both sides up to describe the, the device. You could use it this way, you could use it this way. And then what it did was it morphed into both sides utilized. And around the year 2000, I met a guy named Dean Brittenham. His son was Greg Brittenham with the New York Knicks. He said, you got to meet my father. I flew out to San Diego on that recommendation. And I spent a week with, with Dean Brittenham and he was, this was the era where Michael Gelb, you know, and, and like, had, you know, more hand, more balls than hands, um, you know, think like Leonardo da Vinci and this sort of whole brain focus of, of getting the brain to resonate with that harmonic frequency such that you get in the zone and now all things improve. And so the, the biomechanics of these organs of function when they are going through true path, now you have the motor sensory cortices synced and that can irradiate this global brain effect where you're just more accurate, you're more dialed in, you're more focused. And what I would do with the rope was, let's say that I engaged in something and just overdid it yesterday. You know, I'm not in the mood today. I could take that rope and slow, right? No, no exhaustion whatsoever. And within minutes, I'd ramp myself up and, oh, I feel like training now. So, and just that, like, I, 
I would like study speed reading. So I did like all these vast amount of eye exercises. I would literally take my room and I'd take a hundred post-it notes numbered with the Sharpie and I would place them randomly all over the room, including on the ceiling fan. And then it closed my eyes and then boom, open, go. How fast can I identify the numbers? And this synchronization of body and brain helped me to, to gain tremendous skill in speed reading even. So, you know, when I was heavily into that, I could literally go and be like, no, I just read that. Like, you know, so it was helping me intellectually as well as physically. So I just, I, I call it the Rosetta Stone. You know, if, if, you, if you do your proverbial 10,000 reps and reduce it to muscle memory, well, now you will not only assimilate new skills faster, you will go far further in the practice and mastery of whatever skill comes next because you, you've mapped the space. And the four fundamental patterns correspond to the cardinal directions. So if you define north and north is underhand, well, then south is overhand. And now sideways, east and west is a thing called like the dragon roll where one hand is, you know, supinating, leading with the thumb, the other one's leading with the pinky, and then bring it back to north and do a sneak where you're pronating behind the back. And it's, you, 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 you learn how to wring your, your wrists to create this continuity of the spiral. And if, if we go back to brachiation, sort of, you know, where we theoretically come from, then the longest position that you can attain is hand over foot. And you can watch an ape actually as they brachiate, that is the arrangement because there's no muscular contraction necessary to negotiate that movement because it's all long. Now, that length range of motion is not in fact the maximum range of rotation. To, to create more internal integration, that's sort of this Fibonacci-esque spiraling into an infinitesimal center. And I studied Chinese medical school. So, you know, I know the meridians and point eight of the pericardium is here, point nine. So you route point nine to point eight, and that's the infinity. And I was just able to optimize what God gave me, which is B plus. So I played division three football because there is no division four as my coach used Where did to you play? say. Uh, where'd you play at? I played with Williams College. I was a defensive back. Okay. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and, and I played with my head. The way I played was I wasn't studying biomechanics on film. I was studying X's and O's and the team I was going to play against. So if you study 20 hours of film and you take the 16 millimeter camera back into your dorm at night and you just watch it all, well, now you have keys and reads that like, oh, okay, center guard split, that's a little different. Okay, well, the tendency is the tight ends will be coming across. So that allowed me to play sort of above my athletic level because I use my head to put my body in the best position rather than rely upon the instinct and the athleticism to do it. So that was always my approach is how can I gain advantage by doing everything in my power to prepare for something? And then once football was over, then I just sort of went to the, not the X's and O's, but now the biomechanics of like, what can I ascertain on film? So I was studying film when it was very inconvenient to do so. Sure. Like, 
you know, you, you didn't have an iPhone where, where it's just so easy. You screen record it, put it in slow motion, you see it. <laughs> Uh, one of my biggest regrets is, um, you know, in the early two thousands when we were really at the peak for the training, nobody videoed anything. So, uh, Rafael Ruiz, who, uh, trained me when I was in the NFL to this day is like, I'm so sad that we didn't set up cameras. Uh, it just wasn't feasible. You know, you had a big clunky thing. I mean, now it's like we shoot video of everything. I mean, to be able to have an athlete do something, shoot it in real time and then show them and then coach off of it. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's invaluable. third person. Third person perspective of yourself is an invaluable tool. I had a, what I do is I'm almost like a consultant. So like, I, I, I'm not interested in training you and, you know, being there all the time. I want to look, you know, point you in the right direction, go away, come back, point you in a better direction, go away, come back. That's sort of, and Chris Chamberlain, who loves you guys, by the way, Thank you. he, he's more of like, he's more of like a coach, but what I would do is like, okay, here's an athlete coming in. And he's throwing 89, but two innings, his arm is hurt. And I said, well, show me the film that you have on yourself. And he digs up a video that his mom shot through the chain link fence from way over there. I'm like, that's not footage. So I set up the camera. Okay, here you throw it. And then I show it to him and he goes, I do that? <laughs> yes, you do. Okay, make an adjustment, 92 and no pain. And that's, and that's this. And without the tool of video, you don't make that bridge. He can't interpret because he thinks he's doing something that he's not. And with, with the biomechanics, locomotion, swinging, throwing, right? I mean, that, that and spinal engine, you want your proximal body and your body weight doing the work and everything else is expressing the body's weight. I mean, you know, and that's why all things equal, bigger is better, <laughs> right? And that's why you have weight classes in fights. You know, and you look at the, the NFL guys today, I mean, you got, they've never been stronger. But so much of it is based in this sort of reductionist, oh, there's three planes, so I'm going to train this plane. I'm going to train this plane. I'm going to train. And, oh, we know that, you know, for squats and deadlifts, we have to, you know, prevent the spine from moving. So, therefore, let's prevent the spine from moving. And, that's not, you know, and it's sprinting. Oh, keep, don't make your head move. Michael Johnson himself says that he runs with his head not moving. Yeah. But if you go to the videotape, <clears throat> he's double downing with force because you need the load. And he's going side to side like this because that serpentine action. You read Grakovetsky and it's just logical. If it's Piscean at first and you're in fluid, you don't have the burden of propping yourself up against gravity, and all you do is side bend. A shark, if a shark wants to come up, he's got to go deep and then come up. A dolphin can because it's got, it's got this sort of more akin to spinal engine as opposed to just wiggle. But it starts with wiggle. And there was a scientific experiment where these guys took – they tried to mimic sort of cartilineous structure, and then they hooked it up so that it just wiggled, you know – Okay, from now until it's just going to wiggle all day long, all night long. And what happened was this, this uniform cartilaginous, like softer structure started to ossify in segments. So that is the theory in terms of how you go to the, vertebra the vertebrate structure. Now, as soon as you come out of the, the buoyancy of water, now you're still on this mainframe, but the most efficient path forward is to simply do that. I spent no energy to make progress. 
and hence the spinal engine is born. And then I think that what happens is sort of the reptilian strategy is very paleo. Like you sit on a rock and wait there a month until something walks by and you get it, <laughs> right? And you're cold-blooded. You just let the sun do the work. But the mammalian strategy is to potentiate that sagittal increase in, in displacement. And the mongoose beats the snake because there's more sort of, you know, complex movement. And a tiger beats a lion because a tiger, well, he's a solo hunter anyway, but a, a tiger can rear up and and come down. You know, a bear would destroy any mammal, in my opinion, because it's just bigger and stronger. You know, they, they, they you know, I remember uh, who wins, the gorilla or the bear? Uh, I should say no context. One guy's fighting with knives and the other guy's, <laughs> he's yeah. not even a fighter. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, uh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, the uh, uh, I was looking at a bunch of stuff on Instagram uh, where you're going through the sprint stuff. And, you know, the traditional sprinting always was like, you know, too much side to side head deviation is uh, efficiency and a force bleed effect. You know, but Michael Johnson also, they built the 90-90 off of him, but he also had, you know, allegedly the perfect anthropomorphic ratios for that 90-90, but yet nobody else runs or not everybody runs 90-90. So I think the issue no, comes no. down. Yeah, but the issue comes down well, to. And, and even well, he even well, he breaks the 90-90. Yeah. So, sure. and, and guys do it different. Like if you look at uh, Marcel Jacobs or if you look at Justin Gatlin, they are very long at the bottom. Like you freeze the frame, the arms are down here. Yeah. Whereas Usain Bolt brought it forward and sort of came down and hit – Elbow down. Well, uh, Usain Bolt does more with uh, what you're alluding to, where you're being able to almost put your head from side to side. But I also, um, I always had this question where uh, are Olympic sprinters incredible athletes? And, uh, you know, my deal was like, let me see them do something that involves athleticism because sprinting in a straight line to me is not a great display of athleticism. And so I clicked on a video and it was Usain Bolt playing soccer. And he's like a world-class soccer yeah, player. Right. He's tearing people up. He's moving. He, you know, his ability to move his body through space with the ball against other defenders, and it was just incredible. And I'm like, he's a great athlete. Uh, but yes, and yeah. and I think also what you know, when he was coming up, and he's you know 15 years old, and they okay, this guy's you know potential to be the world's best. They wanted him to do the two and the four, and I think Usain Bolt. You know, had he focused on the four, he probably could have won the four. But I think that's just too painful. And I think, you know, laziness is also like Deion Sanders to get to the fridge. You know, take a minute because there's no effort in that saunter. Right. It's like, ah, right. Well, you're not going to Dion. Dion told me this himself. <laughs> I only get paid to cover people. I only get paid to tackle or hit. And I know that because I dove over the pile and took a cheap shot on him. And when I knocked him down, he got up and got in my face. It's like, I ain't out here trying to hit nobody. So that's the irony on. Uh, <laughs> that on, is hilarious. Well, now the irony of Dion busting these dudes at Colorado and acting like this. I was like, dude, this dude jogged up to every uh, pile, was never trying to make a tackle. And his deal was just to lock dudes down, not make hits. So, yeah, yeah I get that's it. That's funny. But, but, but so Usain Bolt, the 100 is the sexiest title there is. So, you know, best at 200 is not best at 100. And best 40, best 60, 100 is fastest man in the world as we sort of, you know, celebrate it. And the knock on Bolt was he's too tall to get out of the blocks yeah. with the guys. So, you know, he, he needs 200 to catch him, not 100. But Usain Bolt did something really interesting. Is he set up with the left foot forward in the block, but his right foot is the power foot. 
if you watch the stride, you can yeah. see that it's right. And then years later, they, you know, figured out, okay, yes, in fact, it was that. But what he did was he cut the center with rotation with such a degree and had such a coil that he figured out how to get out there with the fast, shorter guys. And then, you know, just blow by him even further because he had that top speed that was the greatest. So yeah. it was – in fact, that, that technique that Michael Johnson on TV said was no good, that was actually the secret to his success. Yeah, no, I mean, and the fact that, uh, you know, as people came out of the blocks, there's always going to be kind of a, a like a, a downgrading, like a degeneration of the speed. You're always going to see it. Usain Bolt actually accelerates through the whole hundred, whereas very few people have that ability to do that because he just kept picking up speed. Because the strap yes, and, and so and- and and yes, exactly. Fewer steps, and he, yeah, he's the he's the only guy to to do thirty meters all at the same top speed. Yep. No one else has ever accomplished that. And a sprint, what they are doing, every single step that you take has to beget a better step. If if you come out of sequence and you miss a step, now the next step you didn't beget better. You you begot something where you now have to catch up to yourself again. And that's the art of sprinting. And unlike the field athlete, you know, who's playing with dings and, you know, constantly hurt and dealing with something, a sprinter is a fine-tuned watch who one little spring goes out of balance and they're not sprinting the way they need to sprint. And so it is a, a highly attenuated form of athlete that so often can't change direction they're geared for this like ramp up. So they're actually not even going as fast as they could for the first 30 because they're begetting better and better to crest at that 70, 80. And if you're cresting at 80, <laughs> you're slowing down a lot slower than the person who crested at 60. That's the Christian Coleman effect. World record in 60, but he you know, doesn't win the 100. Sure. Is the, uh, you know, and, and now you're getting into uh, a lot of dogma. Um, you know, sprinting is one of those things that has such a historical background and so much volume. I mean, I, I come out of the Charlie Francis school. So when I got hurt in 99, I ruptured my patellar tendon. And uh, I couldn't get my knee to fire. Uh, Mauro de Pasquale put, ends up plugging me into uh, um, Charles Polquin, which ended up kind of being a whole different other story. And then I went back to Morrow. Morrow plugs me in with Charlie. And Charlie put me onto the EMS protocols, which actually ended up getting my quad to fire, which allowed me to go on and you know play for my NFL career. Yes. But uh, yep. we, we talked about sprinting and running. Um, you know, it's where I developed a lot of our med ball stuff, uh, you know, the GPP med ball work and just all of the sprint, staying away from the no man's land, you know, and all the sprint stuff that we use in power athlete is heavily influenced by, you know, Charlie Francis. So what what I did back in the day was I read everything that I could on Charlie Francis, everything he ever wrote. I, you know, uh, I was training for speed, you know, that the, the sure. book. Yes. Right. Uh, Super and I, I or speed trap. Yeah. Well, that yeah, that came later. Training right. for speed was like and he was sharing like stories about how he would put the East stem underneath the feet. Yeah. On the soles. And, yeah, and, and then the, the, the thing that always stuck with me for Charlie was 
he once said that the, the greatest cue that he had ever received and the greatest cue that he ever provided was the phrase, wait for it. And that is getting everything absolutely perfect and you need to time that. So it's a, it's a, it's a wait for it because impatience is not running your own race. So if you, if you look at someone like a Carl Lewis, he demonstrated a discipline and a patience to trust the fact that at 70, I'm not in first place, but because I have waited for it, I'm, you know, passing them at 85 and 90. Right. And Ben Johnson was just such raw power. He comes out of the starting blocks. He looks like one of those lizards running on water. <laughs> yeah. And he was so strong that he could, he could pull himself back on top of himself where anybody else doing that would have been out in front of themselves and never recover to, to actually get there fast. Uh, Charlie told me that I think it was Ben Johnson. He box squatted like 600 for a triple, like five days out from winning that gold medal. Yeah, well, I, I mean, and, and just, my, underst yeah, my, my like understanding... like 175 pounds, 180 pounds, 175 yeah, pounds. And, and my understanding was that he would do a little quarter squat with 400 pounds before the run. Yeah. So it was sort of that, you know, po uh, that, that post-activation potentiation of just turn the nervous system on, do not exhaust it, one rep, okay, like I've just cleared out the pipes now. Okay, yeah. so okay, now I'm ready to, to boom to do it. Yeah, no, there was um, an interesting piece and it ended up getting proved years later and it's actually in some unreleased research, so don't email me or listen to this and ask for it. Uh, but I was part of this, uh, the guy that was doing the research actually forwarded to me, they ended up putting on uh, caps to do brain mapping and started mapping which part of the brain was most utilized under different percentages of 1RM. And, you know, singles, doubles, somewhere over 92, 95%, all of a sudden was activating the top part of the brain you know, the highest level decision-making. And then obviously, you know, more reps in that, you know, 87 to 80% was the middle. And then obviously down below and what they were using it for. And Charlie made a point, you know, the heavy singles and doubles allows them to focus more in these instances. So, I mean, here you are years later and they find that it activates the top layer or the, the top frontal or top of the cortex of the brain. Yeah. And I, I think of like, I try to reduce things down to, the first principle. So my definition of strength is I just equate it with pressure management. So, you know, your ability to be strong is your ability to manage the pressure to perform that task. And the skeletal architecture is the priority to handle the maximum pressure. So if the skeleton doesn't have the integrity, well, okay, now there's a bunch of com compensation riddling the body to, you know, to, to, to sort of have a leak in the tire, as it were. And the hormonal benefits of that type of intense pressurization, think about what it's doing to your endocrine system if the pressure is greater. You're, you're literally squeezing the, you know, it, it, it's infinite, but it's not infinite. It can only be infinitesimal. So you go inward and you're like... <sighs> And now you're getting this hormonal effect that I think that also constitutes, you know, better growth, but it also constitutes more confidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, uh, as you're saying pressure, uh, last night we were working on stack packs, uh, stack passing at JITS 
And, you know, you basically get underneath the dude and you're folding them over like a taco shell. And it was pretty interesting as I grabbed the back of the pants and started folding over some of the guys, all of a sudden their ability to handle pressure goes out the window and people start tapping for me. Like you can fold me like a taco, sit there all day and I have zero problem managing the pressure because I've also had 400 pound dudes sit on me. So like, it's not anything that's uncomfortable, but I'm always amazed too. one, you know, people maybe carry a little extra around the midsection, lack, you know, uh, hip extension or sorry, hip mobility. And, uh, all of a sudden that pressure becomes some real, but yeah, we were working on that last night and seeing the look on people's faces the minute that they got folded over and that pressure sat on them as you're talking about it. I'm like, Oh, I saw pressure last night and a lot of people do not like it. Uh, they don't like it. They don't like it virtually. They don't like it in situations walking out in front of a hundred thousand people to go play or even in, uh, you know, jujitsu practice getting folded like a taco. Yeah, and I mean, you know, talk about a hot spot, all the pressure concentrates to that restriction. And so now it is, you know, pressure that'll even create damage and, you know, tap, tap, tap. And what I, what I um, also, it, using the, the THC also allowed me to sort of go to places in my imagination where the phonetics and the, just the manipulation of air to speak and make sounds have a postural consequence. And if you go back into the ancient Eastern text, the I Ching, you have this glottal stop where the E, smiling helps you breathe through the nose better. And anybody out there listening can try it. You know, put a big smile on your face and you'll, holy shit, I can actually breathe easier. easier. And if the objective is to keep blood going to the brain to oxygenate it, well, then you need to protect this. And so just that e ching, if you put that like evil joker smile on your face and you're you're using the plasimus to 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 push that pressure out and get in here and then you know how to face the force with your chin, I'm very difficult to choke out in jujitsu. So because I've trained that and, and I and I can you know I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you know how to set it up, well, okay, you know, now something that would just nullify somebody, you could deal with it. Yeah, sure. And, and <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's my athletic inadequacy is my secret power because, again, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> you going to give up? Are you going to keep fighting? <laughs> um, in terms of uh, athletic development, and we get into this um, – more often than we not, when we start looking at like developing young athletes, um, you know, as I'm listening to this, everything is balanced. It's not like, Hey, you know what? You're going to do one. It's almost like moving through different plane. Like, I mean, just basically not even planes of motion. Cause you're talking about 360 degrees of rotation in those planes of motion, which is what's so fascinating for me about jujitsu is, you know, we always think of X, Y, and Z axis and, you know, moving within these planes, but you know, we're always talking about it from like a standing kind of maybe, sagittal frontal this deal but now all of a sudden you're on the ground and you're you could be on your side you could be on your back i mean you're basically doing these in different positions hands feet and uh i think the athletic problem solving aspect of jiu-jitsu is the most fascinating for me for uh you know forcing young athletes and that's why i put all my kids in it and i just want them to go out and figure out how to solve these problems with their body in relation to other people within the open loop system Um, but in terms of athletic development when you start having people come in you know, let's say a young baseball player, or whatever, who's only throwing left-handed or right-handed, who's only hitting this direction. 
Um, I wonder about the imbalances that you see and then, you know, applying this kind of uh, almost like coil snaking from left to right, different set of movement systems in terms of helping create balance. Yeah, well, that, that, that two things. So, you know, the, this focus on three planes, that stems from six degrees of freedom. So if there's three planes, there's six degrees of the freedom. So the pitch, the roll, and the yaw are part of it as opposed to just travel in plane. So that understanding speaks to exactly what you're speaking of. And the, the, the one-sided athlete, you are training, you're, you're not going to pitch in the game non-dominant, but you also don't want to be a fiddler crab, you know, with just this helpless non-dominant. And so one of the challenges in training the non-dominant side is getting the dominant side to relinquish its dominance. The reason why someone who's never practiced non-dominant can't throw part of the reason it's like trying to sign the receipt at the store where like you got to hold that paper. Otherwise it can't write, you know, it's fork and knife without the fork. It's hard to cut the meat. So by like, if somebody just tries to throw first time, they're not going to use their dominant hand in the role of non-dominant. So the rope gives you this like continuity of saying, Oh, if I'm doing this to throw, well, then I'm going to do this to throw. And so that's part of the puzzle. And then it's just that repetition so that you have the, what I'll call functional symmetry, meaning you can, you can, you can perform the task, even if it's different. I hate the word functional. Like when I hear it, like I, like it's become, I mean, it makes sense. Well, that's because it's been bastardized. Anything (laughs) like, uh, like I, you know, I got into it somebody, I'm like, anything can be functional. Uh, I have a machine up in the gym that we hooked a bunch of bands up to do hamstring curls, you know, because we do so much, uh, you know, RDLs and different type of things where we're lengthening the hamstring. We needed to do more stuff to shorten the hamstring and build more bicep in it. And, you know, for me and for, you know, some of the issues that we're seeing within some of our athletes and the fighters, they need a little bit more hamstring uh, bicep. And, uh, well, you know, I mean, they need to be stronger. You know, so much of what they're doing is like straight like here, but then to be able to pull back this way into like a triangle, for example, we need more pull that way. Yes. So for me now, all of a sudden yes. this laying right. hamstring curl is functional. Well, both sides utilize it. What happened with functional is it was bastardized because it cut against strong and you know suddenly oh i'm functional yeah like i can touch my toe and do this and yeah a guy who bench presses 400 pounds doesn't give a shit you're functional he's gonna smash you right so i i'd like to restore it so that you don't dislike the word <laughs> where it literally becomes like okay stronger is better let's admit that well but let's strength not is the platform stronger. uh i i believe uh, strength is the platform at which everything's built on like i believe uh if somebody is not strong and even if they come and do your system uh there's like the reaping the rewards are dramatically less like something that i found with you know even victor hugo that i've been working with all of a sudden we fixed some of his injuries he made he was stronger his ability to do everything increased so much more his athleticism just like blossomed and uh you know and it's one of those things where i'm like you know people tend to go down these roads and i'm like if you could just get much stronger all of this would be so much more fun i mean i was talking to shanji about this last night with the um the budokan system and some of the things that they're doing and i'm like yeah stuff's great if you're already strong if you can't do a single push-up how does any of this help you 
if uh, you struggle to do an air squat, all of these movements are great and they look so amazing and you're doing them and you're flowing and you look like this incredible athlete. If I can't do a push-up, this stuff is like a bridge too far. It might as well be on the other side of the universe. It's the both sides utilized and the way the analogy that I use is is the 64 squares on a chessboard, eight and eight, double infinity. So on the chessboard, the king is balance and the queen is strength. And balance, that means that's what has to survive because that is what keeps the queen going. So the queen is the strength. She's the strongest one on the field, but the king is balance and all the players working together is the coordination at whatever the task at hand is. And so it does mean that the king has to survive. The balance and balance is just another name for coordination. Sure. It's just being where and when at the appropriate time and place. That's all it is. And it's specific to the task. So violin requires the ability to balance the movement and coordinate it and, you know, walking on a tightrope for that task. So, but the strength, like you said, why is a man a better athlete than a woman? He's stronger. I mean, it's just, okay, simple. It's just faster. They're stronger. They're bigger. I mean, it's, you know, and the bones are stronger. It's not just the muscles. The whole structure is stronger. Stronger is better. And the functional guys, everybody's got their unique selling proposition. So how am I going to differentiate myself from them? Oh, well, you know, they're not functional. I'm functional. So therefore, what they do is wrong. It's like, dude, it's both sides. And you need the best of strength. I mean, and I just started doing this exercise where I take the Duffin uh the Duffin Transformer bar. Uh, yeah, and I put huge 25 we got two pounds of them. on the end. And 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 literally what I do with it is I just figure eight and I arc four quadrants. I got the core quadrants in the front, and then I got the two or sorry, two in front, two in back. And I do that. I don't need to warm up to do it. And I feel so incredible. And it's something that I just recently started doing regularly. In jujitsu class, I'm not getting sweeped in a circumstance where I would get swept because now I get that turn. And because my body knows the coordination, it's not dangerous. People have a hissy fit. Like, oh my God, like you're gonna hurt your spine. No, I'm not. This feels incredible. This is, a, and 25 pounds is my Goldilocks. I've tried it with less, not as good. I tried it with more, I'm not as good, but Someone like yourself, who's a lot stronger than me, might have a sweet spot at 45s. <laughs> right? So, you know, stronger is better. Sure. And and what I view it as is like, if if I'm not as strong as you, I have to I have to maintain tricks that you don't comprehend to beat you. So the master is never gonna teach the Uki quite all of it if he wants to stay, you know, as master. And then he hypnotizes Uki, you know, the Uki's this big, strong person who believes he's the flea circus. You know, he hit his head on the glass too many times, he didn't even jump high. But if you took the students and didn't make the weapons last, and you sort of said, okay, get good with a stick, get good with a rope, and learn how to throw a rock. Okay, now that athleticism plus the trick of learning how to yield, neutralize issue, the whole key that you did, be invisible. 
you can't find my center. And if I'm really good at that, I can make you think you got my center over here. And then you do that. I do this. So it really is the balance of that hard and soft. And, and it's, it's the Bruce Lee said, be like water, yeah. right? Water. The first effect of water is crash. I mean, water hits like cement, bang. And then instantly it's fluid. And that is the order. It has to be hard and then it has to be soft and enveloped to go back to hard. And the, you know, you see these Tai Chi masters getting beat up by a second year MMA guy. If you're going to pretend and think that soft is going to beat hard, well, then you're going to get punched in the face and it's over. So you do need hard. But if I stay hard, now coordination, Shanji is just going to completely dominate you. Yeah. No, I'm with and, you. And, and it's just fight, fight and flight. And, and flight is objective, 958. Okay. <laughs> right? You disagree with that. Now we get to call you the asshole. But fight is subjective. Because it's Robinson, it's Mayweather, it's, you know, whoever, Muhammad Ali, Jones, whatever, your master, my master, you know, we'll never agree. But the same exact principles apply. All you have is your body's weight. How well can you move that body's weight? Practicing fundamental movement principles is the foundation and then specify to the task at hand. And so that's, I had a ton of time, a ton of time a ton of time with a very smart brain and a B plus body. So I am good enough athletically to feel what's true. So I have a clue about like, I'm not just pretending, but I have the, the intense motivation to be able to stand in a room of, of, of you and, you know, bigger and just not feel vulnerable. I have one move that you're not going to get me on the first move. And if I maintain myself and you can't control me, well, then I got a chance to get away as opposed to feeling deep brain. I'm talking limbically vulnerable. Like it always just used the prison experience. You go in your cellmate. Okay. <laughs> what you going to do? Yeah. Well, what if I get the bottom bunk and what if this and this are off limits? <laughs> right? So bring it down to that base level. And then, okay, what's real? And what we do in the, in the lab here is we play a game called push hands. And it's derivative of Tai Chi. I know push hands is. It's yep. sort of the athletic version. Nice. Yeah, so, but, but you know, Tai Chi push hands is, is really focused ultimately on super soft. And it requires a compliant partner ultimately. Yeah. Like, but, so we play a more athletic version of it where it's just like, there's no grabbing, right? So, so if you're going to do some kind of a hold to move, it's just a quick pull. It, there's no like holding on. It's not wrestling. Mm -hmm. And then it's below the neck and above the waist. So you're not using legs or, you know, going above or below. And then it's just as simple as who can move who? Who's the better person? Who can move who? And if you know the trick, which is to – is to have the intent that's enveloping them. But, you know, as soon as force on force, you let it go away. <laughs> you keep moving forward. I can take someone who's a better athlete. And if they haven't played that game, I can push them around. Yeah. Well, that's, and I mean, so what uh, I'm doing mastery. when I play that game. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, it's, it's I mean, mastery. it's mastery and, and, what, and exposure. I mean, uh, like the, the greatest determining act, uh, factor it's reps. For, yeah, it's for, reps. for athletic mastery is opportunity. 
So, I mean, it's, uh, that's what I thought was so fascinating with jujitsu in that uh, playing pro football, the single worst place for me to be and where everything basically, the reason I get, or the way I get cut is if I end up on the ground with a dude on top of me. As an offensive lineman, if I'm on the ground, a dude on top of me, I'm just going to go home. So now all of a sudden to yeah. have to go into a situation where I'm going to start on my back, I got this guy on top of me, or I got a pull guard or whatever, it goes against every principle in my mind. But uh, for me and for a lot of guys, um, you know, they become very like, I only play left guard. I only play right tackle. Whereas I played years on the left, I played years on the right and had, you know, somewhat ambidextrous. So for me, it's uh, with the JIT stuff, it doesn't really matter which side I go to. But then you start wrestling with dudes, and dudes always go to one side, and they're so dominant mm. that they can't see things on the other. So that's always been pretty fascinating. We interrupt this episode with a shameless self-promotion. Do you have limited access to equipment and restricted time to train? Let me introduce you to Lean Enable, our bare essentials training program for those lean on time and equipment. Don't let limitations hold you back. Get able-bodied with our adaptive training to tackle the daily demands of life. Head to powerathletehq.com forward slash lean and able and claim your seven-day free trial today. Now back to the show. As I was going through all your different systems, um, obviously there's a hierarchy in the systems. Um, as I started looking at it, like kind of looking, thinking about like uh, the jump ropes in terms of going from side to side and all the pieces, you know, obviously there's not weight in the jumps, but then all of a sudden, as I saw you guys doing more things with, uh, it almost looked like clubs. Um, I watched your one coach swinging a 203 pound, pound kettlebell, throwing it in the air and then catching it. So obviously that weight's moving against, you know, away from his center of gravity. So now he's trying to basically force and manipulate 200 pounds out and continue to swing. So it almost looked like there was a hierarchy of like light. And then as things got heavier, farther and farther away from the body so that you have to use your body in relationship to balance these movements. Yes. It, it, it's, it's rooted in there's, there's three categories. So, so the umbrella, we call it rotational movement training. So that's, that's sort of our umbrella. We, we, we believe in balance and rotation because everything is rotation. And the, the two elements that compose the rotational movement training, the first is coiling core training, where we want to optimize the length and strength sided. And so we want to get both sides of that. So on one side, we want it to be the longest and strongest, most integrated. And the other side, we want it to be the maximum spring coil where you could support the maximum amount of weight. You could remain in that position, poised to pounce for as long as necessary because you have a tensional balance through this differentiation that is right now ready and it's not getting tired. So you, you master one side, you master the other side. That gives you the bandwidth to rotate to full positions that are fundamentals, you know, length and strength. Gotcha. And then the other side of that is the bilateral torsion training. So we just translate any kind of flexion or extension. We're just three-dimensionalizing six degrees of freedoming that so that we have an internal torsion and then an external torsion. And it combines with the coiling core training that you have cross torsion, mixed torsion, and that adds up to, you know, the best foundation possible for locomotion, swinging and throwing and catching and lifting. So we prefer like uh, if we want to lift something heavy, really a foundational would be the stone or the bag sure. so that you have to envelop it. And then, and then be sort of internally arranged longer than if it's a bar. But 
we like bars. So, <laughs> you well, know what I mean? Uh, we we don't bash tools. No, I mean, uh, the bars are great. But if you think about anatomically, you know, you can put them into a position which, you know, finds your center of gravity. You put on these perfectly round cylinder plates and you put them on with collars. It's the most advantageous position. But all of a sudden, you know, putting 200 pounds on your back is one thing. But picking up a 200-pound sandbag, uh, that's why for – the training that I've been doing with the fighters, we have a uh, strongman day that involves uh, a 203 pound, 150 and 100 pound kettlebell that we swing, you know, different sandbags and D balls up from 80 to 200 pounds, isometric contractions, throws, clearing this, I mean, rotation, um, you know, plyometrics jumps, I mean, everything. And I found, um, I call it density training or really what I'm looking for is tensile strength. I think about everything in steel. How many times do you heat the metal and you fold it? That tensile strength is what I'm searching for. And then really just training the grip. And unfortunately, uh, you know, you can do compensatory acceleration and speed, and there's so many things we can do with barbells, but there has to be kind of a marriage. Like, you know, if you live and die by the barbell, I think you're leaving things on the gains uh, on the table for athletes no question. that no question. have to be able to move their no body question. in relation. It just, I mean, the, the trunk stability, the fact that, you know, now you get the spine rounding where in a, you know, deadlift, you're going to pull with a nice flat back, but these guys are never in a position with a flat back when they go to pick somebody up or they go to scoop a guy. So I think you can't train like, no, okay. you're not as long. I mean, it's, it's yeah. right. And, and you're putting yourself in yeah, a bad it, situation. If I haven't trained it and then I ask my athlete to go do it and they get hurt, whose fault is it? It's mine, not theirs. Well, there. I mean, listen. I listen. I I think that it's it, do no harm and don't build your strength on dysfunction. Those are sort of some just edicts, right? If you're going to be in the game, there's a certain responsibility that you are keeping your athletes with the greatest response ability, right? Yeah. So I have a, my pet peeve in the industry is the Paloff press because. Ever since I started studying Marshall, the last thing I want to do is get caught flat 50-50, braced with tension rising up in freeze, where I'm no longer right now ready, and I'm getting stronger at the uprooting, where the best thing I could do in a Marshall situation is change, let go, and, and funnel force the floor. And... It, and it's personal for me, too, because in 2007, the narrative within the conventional certified body, you know, NSCA, CSCS, that which you need to even work in the colleges, is it, it became core stability is more important than core strength. And that core immobility, the ability to brace it rigid against all things, became the foundation. And in order to, I guess, propagate that narrative, suddenly the BOSU ball became a, um, a pariah. You know, it was unstable and it made you weaker. And, and, and so I just, we have know, a, uh, I, I kept before, my mouth shut for, I'm, I know you're pretty fired on. I, we have a BOSU ball in the gym and, uh, I used it pretty exclusively, uh, for my shoulder rehab. So what I would do is I would put one hand on it and do push-ups, and then I would flip it over uh, and do push-ups off of the flat side. And I mean, you know, I would hold it here and use balance and try to like go to one side and hold. I mean, for me personally, I mean, we never did much uh, on the lower body, but for like upper body shoulder rehab, uh, probably one of the most valuable tools I've used. It's 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 just a tool. Yeah. And what what we've discovered is that compressing compressing it is a very special training stimulus. So 
elast we love elastics and we teach something called limit force elastics and elastic bands you stretch and elastic balls you compress and the reason we like the limit force on elastics is because the acceleration factor of the force is exponentially greater than mass or isometric so if you picture a slingshot pulled to 100 pounds versus 100 pounds the slingshot's going to get there so fast and the other one's just going to do 9.8 meters per second squared. So you're almost putting a current through the body Where, with um, these elastics. And oh, I, I was going to uh, stop you before you went down that road because I didn't want to get too far away from you talking about the fact that okay, uh, yeah. people started teaching. And this never made sense to me. Uh, you know, the trunk in terms of like being rigid, like if you think about it, like locking down your trunk, I mean, uh, think about a professional fighter, right? We were always taught task-specific tension. So you have to be able to keep yourself in a position where I have to be able to breathe and move. And much like a snake, like punching out and then coiling and snapping at the last second and bringing back, same within the trunk. You have to be able to hold this position. As you get hit, you have to be able to brace and have this task-specific tension in your trunk. If I'm just walking around flexing all the time, like I'm trying to you know, shit my pants, like one, it's impossible to move. And uh, just yes. Im impractical. So teaching people to do that under load never made much sense to me. That's why we don't train the trunk like that. We also don't train the trunk for extension and flexion, you know, because for me, I always thought the trunk was more designed to isometrically contract and then be able to rotate and move. That's why I liked all the med balls. And just one of the injury mechanisms that I used to see in the NFL all the time is guys would set back, they would rotate and then get loaded to the side. Either somebody would hit them this way or hit them this way. Mm. And as soon mm. as their feet were here, they rotated, and then they got loaded this way or that way, they would end up hurting their backs. I must have seen 25 back injuries happen from that exact different mechanics. So what did I do? I went back into my training, staggered stance, rotation, come back the other way and throw, and started using heavier and yes, heavier med yes. balls, lighter, faster, different reactive surfaces, different positions, turn, throw, have somebody push me, and just started trying to uh, replicate and mimic that injury mechanisms uh, mechanism that I saw, you know, and using basic ISO stability with the dead bugs in different positions. Everything that I call trunk training, which isn't core training, apples and pears have cores, big, strong oak trees have trunks. And just getting away from it and then asking people, being like, oh, you got a strong core, come try this stuff. And they couldn't do any of it. And Well, and, and, and basically the objective is you have to funnel the force to the floor. And if you know the mechanics of locomotion, swinging and throwing, that is the ultimate way to funnel to the floor. And so if you don't understand that lower brain, it's too, it's too much to compute. And if the nervous system has been organized to, to, to have this rigidity without any yield, now you're an old oak tree that a big wind comes and there's no flexibility in it. Yep. So it just cracks. And, you know, the, the younger oak tree, you know, has that like you, there's a resilience in the yield. Yep. If you're in a tall building, it's going to sway. If you're on a bridge, it's going to move. And if it's not, it's going to crumble. So this this idea it was foist upon the industry. And I'm also a, tr a believer that if I go to the guitar teacher, I want the guitar teacher to know how to play the guitar. So I don't want someone who did a study with 19 soccer players and then determined that, oh, we have to do this now. And you can't even demonstrate that with your, you know, th the end objective. 
Like if I'm going to learn boxing, the guy better know how to box. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just theory. And and you know what I mean? Same with jiu-jitsu. So, and, 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 and these are sort of uh, yeah. extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Listen, dude. I, yeah. at, 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 10, at 1030 this morning, Leo Santos, who is steeped in the Ribeiro jiu-jitsu, is coming in here to train me privately because I can afford to train with him another black belt, another black belt, and go to class. So I'm not just spending all my time fighting with a blue belt. I'm a white belt who gets to touch and feel black belt because I don't want to fight in jujitsu. I want to be invisible in jujitsu. So if you don't have the master's hand, then you're not going to get that mastery feel. Yeah. When I was studying Tai Chi, I went to New York and I studied with William C.C. Chen privately and he was the, you know, the principal student of Chang Man Chin, <laughs> sort of lineage. And when he took my balance and I didn't know my balance was lost until it was lost, I was like, oh, that's what orange juice tastes like. So you have reference and it's feel. It's the experience through the nervous system that's important. Yeah. So what happens is that you get an entire class who sort of the way that they protect themselves is peer review. Yeah. Well, anything that you tell me is anecdote. Like you only played in the NFL. Like that's all you did. You didn't do a study. <laughs> it's no. like, all right. Uh, well, I, I, I have the right. same thing. I roll with, uh, you know, Victor and Shanji and Philippe and the guys out here who are like the best in the world. And so, and I get a chance to train them. Yes. So all of a sudden, like we're, as we're going, I'm thinking to myself, shit, what did I do? These guys are so strong now, like the the difference in terms of grip and their movement. <laughs> and when they're throwing different stuff in the speed, it's uh, uh, it's almost frightening. Like, I, I don't know how to explain it other than like I have that like like there's fear in which things happen. And, I you know, I'm super durable, but I'm like, man, I get a chance to see these guys train them, put them through all this stuff and then go and then, you know, have them do their, their skill and their craft. And it's uh, uh it's frightening. And I mean, but that's, that's good. I well, mean, I think those are the, this is, you got to swim. If you want to learn to okay. swim, swim in deep yes. waters. Well, what, what it is, is this is a tip of the spear conversation. This is where it's going. Physical education is the fundamental education. And what the best athletes represent is all they do is they validate the practices and, you know, the things that you're doing. Because it's harder to make the best better than it is to make a 13-year-old faster by the time they're 17. I mean, that's just easy, sure. right? You could have them do anything and they're better. So the validation and then the motivation and inspiration, everyone wants them to be like Mike, right? So we look at these you know, heroes who are the champion players and they motivate us, right? You know, and they excite us and it's beautiful to see human movement at the pinnacle. But I want physical education for humanity and the masses. Yeah. And if you're not even walking in balance because you have no swag and you have no saunter, every single step that they take is out of balance. And it's too little of in, in you know, and it's too little imbalance to even notice. And then you aggregate 10 million and now you're sweeping the steps on your porch and your back goes out. And now you're on painkillers and now life sucks. Sure. So if you just moved the way God would have you move if he were walking in your shoes, well, then now you have this resilience and every step is a rep. And it just makes so much sense. And the fact that these practices make the best better 
is basically the justification for teach the rest and don't have them do stupid things just because your little, you know, your little myopic scientific, oh, I'm at the top of the rung. Fosbury Flop, 1968, he demonstrates a superior technique that sets the Olympic record and wins the gold four years later. The gold medal is won by a lower jump and he's doing the old technique. If that is not cognitive dissonance and willful ignorance and professional irresponsibility, there is no better example. Power Athlete Nation, we know your health and wellness are a priority. That's why we partnered with Stay Classy Meats. They are dedicated to connecting you with the finest responsibly raised meats on the planet. Their direct partnerships with farmers and ranchers mean they can deliver to you nationwide. They're more than a meat company. They're a network of athletes and farmers committed to superior nutrition. Stay Classy works with producers like R.C. Carter, whose regenerative agricultural practices result in beef that's packed with 75% more essential amino acids, phytonutrients, and a perfect blend of omega-3-6 ratio. Experience a difference with their 10-pound ground beef or 15-pound assorted meat subscription box, specially branded as the Stay Classy Power Athlete Box. Click on the link and order today with the promo code POWERATHLETE, all one word. Join us in securing your health and food supply chain. Stay Classy Meats, superior nutrition, naturally. It's time to step up your game. Stay classy with us. All right. So uh, another thing I pulled off your <laughs> off your website. I I really don't have anything to I I really don't have anything to co- uh, to co-sign on. I do appreciate people going out yes, and yes, and, and, do. and yes, doing research. Do. But the problem that I run into with it is uh, like there's a disconnect between practical application and the information. And the problem is is everybody goes back and well the research doesn't support this. Um, you know, and I go back with Charles Paulquin, right? If you're waiting on the research, you're going to be 10 years behind. And if you're training your athletes in real time Bingo. and seeing what they're able to do, then you know what? You can make moves. And then what happens if you understand their sport? And that's why I started doing jujitsu, not because I wanted to. Actually, I hated every aspect of it. But as Shanji approached me, because my daughter was training there, um, I realized it would be disingenuous for me to work with these guys if I didn't understand what they did on the mat. So then I had to, like, you know, empty my cup humble myself to go on and put on a white belt and go out there and get my ass beat. And I knew that as long as I keep yeah. showing up, it's only, it's, it's only a matter of time before I pick it up. But that piece of like humbling yourself to get out there and be like, okay, what are my athletes? For me, uh, training football players and especially offensive and defensive linemen uh, is very simple. Um, you know, uh, I equate it much to boxing and the boxing skills I was taught playing two thirds inside out first meaningful touch, how to cut a guy off in the ring is very similar to pass protection, um, you know, head and hands, how you use your feet, how you're able to, you know, use an individual's momentum to allow you to redirect and play with pad level. I mean, all of these things are very basic and can be taught, but now all of a sudden you take it to something like jujitsu where now all of a sudden we're not playing on our feet all the time, but we might. Uh, you know, we typically always play with our strong foot back. Now they're in judo and they're playing strong foot forward, you know, flat backs, straight legs. I mean, now you're going, I mean, it's, it's such a, a, an interesting skill set that they have to have. And then on top of it, they have to be strong and stable. They have to be able to rotate. I mean, all the things that required of other athletes. So it's been a really fascinating piece, but I wouldn't have learned and understood it unless I immerse myself into it and be humble enough to do it. And I feel like with a lot of this stuff, it's easier to coach it from the sideline and from up here where I don't have to get my hands dirty. And I think that's, I mean, it's like people that uh, I'm going to coach sprinters, but I don't sprint. 
You know, I'm going to coach or this. never or never have sprinted. Yeah. Yeah. So my my story on jujitsu is very similar to yours in the sense that like my first experience with jujitsu was private lessons with Salo Ribeiro. Like, really? You want to talk about opportunity? And I didn't avail myself of the opportunity because I didn't like it. I'm not flexible and I don't want to be on the ground. And you know what? I'm busy with other stuff. So I was like, respectfully, Sensei, you know, I appreciate this profoundly, but, you know, I'm just, it, it's not my thing. And then my 14-year-old my son got in trouble. <laughs> he was 13. And so it was like, okay, it's time to do something for discipline. Let's do jujitsu. Mm -hmm. And rather than just go and watch, you know, disingenuous, you know, I got to learn it too. So I got on the mat and it was for my son and the fact that it was for him meant that I was willing to do it. It wasn't for me. And that created the situation of the opportunity for me to get the bug. And now I love it. So, and now I play my game because like I have an elbow that doesn't work. I don't have a triceps, the thing's hanging on by a thread. And that happened to me playing football when I was 16. And then a surgeon who botched two surgeries that <laughs> left me without a right arm. And the only way I could play football was tape it, tape it, tape it, tape it, tape it. So you couldn't, you know, do that. And that is a challenge in jujitsu. Yeah. I have a replaced hip as a result of compensating for this my whole life. So jujitsu is really all about understanding the principles, enduring the practice. Cause like you said, eventually that white belt's going to get dirty enough. It's going to look black and you know, you, you will progress. And then it's about making it your own so that, you know, if you lack some skill or if you have a greater skill in a certain area, well, that's going to be your style and styles make the fights. Sure. So it's a very interesting art. And I call, I call jujitsu like Tai Chi all the way down to the ground. So Tai Chi is played standing, but the true displacement is all the way down on the ground. And that's not standing on your feet. And if you're not, capable of doing that, well, then you have an incomplete game. And it is life and death. I mean, ultimately, an arm bar is just a distraction to go get the blood and cut it off to the head if you really want to know the truth. <laughs> sure. Right? No, I mean, it, it makes total sense. If, you know, if you, uh, what um, Have you got much into the foot? Uh, this is something that I've been uh, just wrapped around the oh, axle God. for. So, so when I um, I always had high arches. Um, I grew up in Southern California, and we went to the beach a lot. And I didn't wear shoes. Uh, never had any problems with my feet. And then uh, we were playing. I think it was my senior year, my junior year. We were playing up in Washington State, up in Pullman, and they had really shitty turf. And it was super cold. I was as I was blocking to do the running back got tackled on the back of my foot. My like my toe was in the ground. I was up. He landed on my heel. Drove my foot in, uh, basically destroyed my big toe, and it gave me a mild Liz Frank. So um, there was nothing they could do, so they just basically injected it. And uh, injected the top of my foot, mm -hmm. injected my toe. I couldn't feel my big toe, couldn't feel the top of my foot. So the only way I could get any feeling was actually turning my foot out, like, like duck-footed, 30, 45 degrees, and then rolling on my arch. 
so I could actually feel where my foot was because mm. it was the only part that wasn't numb. The problem is the mm. minute that I started playing off my arch, mm. I had zero power. I couldn't push. I couldn't run. I couldn't do mm. anything. And when all of a sudden my toe healed and everything, I went back to this more, to more toes forward, you know, putting my big toe on the ground, getting my glute to fire. And I was so, so much more explosive, but it really forced me to start taking care of my feet and strengthening my feet. And then when I went to the Eagles, uh, we had um, a podiatrist named Lee Cohen and Doc Cohen's like, here's the deal. I'll make you orthotics today, or I want to teach you how to strengthen and take care of your feet because you got high arches. So I have always done like a series of stretches and a lot of foot and a lot of focus work on making sure my feet are strong. And uh, I firmly believe it's why I'm able to do most of this stuff, but it's been pretty interesting as we've been working with athletes and especially the jiu-jitsu guys. Uh, there's not a lot of emphasis put on strengthening the foot, different planes of motion, like um, IMA, who's one of the uh, young killers that they brought in, girl 17. I mean, no dorsiflexion, just really weak in her feet. So now I've gone through and started taking her through. This is how I want you to stretch your feet. These are the positions I want you to be in, and this is what we have to focus on because this will become a deficit. So just wondering if there's any pieces within the WEC method of focusing on the foot and strengthening and make them more efficient because, you know, 99% of our contact with this earth is through the foot. Yeah, right. Well, the answer is yes. I have gone like in the depths of this realm and beyond for the feet. And I created a, a, a map called the six lines of intent. And so it was basically a way to create a flat map that was a representation of the three-dimensional you know, structure, akin to the way that you cannot equate a globe map with a flat map you know, it has to be the Mercator or, you know, the, the sizes have to be off or the distances have to be off or you got to like cut the map up weird to wrap it around a globe. So basically it was taking the concept that I want to have the capacity to, to play with a foot within the foot. And so I drew a center line through the foot and then I put a foot across the metatarsal bones at a 15 degree angle from plum square because of the tendency for those, uh, the metatarsal heads to go there. And I counted seven bones, not five, because the two little sesamoids in, um, you know, under the big toe first met head, I just called those seven. And that meant that the heel was the eight ball. And the way to best play with the eight ball is to not need it so that you can drop it was the theory that I had. And so what I did was I just, you know, Russian dolls, put another foot within a foot, put another foot within a foot. And I went back to six and basically those lines gave me sort of map of where my intention can be, where my shoulders can be and the positioning of how I pivot. And I defined the fourth and fifth met heads as the green dot, as, as sort of the, the initiation point of that athletic gate is, is the, the, the forward aspect of those fourth and fifth met heads. And the logic there is that the fourth and fifth metatarsals have direct tie into the calcaneus, whereas the second story is the big toe, second toe, third toe that directly tie into talus, the floating bone. And it's very complex, but it yields the fruit of relatively simple exercises that, you know, you wouldn't have to explain the depths of it to, to, to you know, to tell someone to do something useful with it. Um, and the other principle that I wanted was I wanted to remove all slack out of the foot 
and shank such that like I want both sides of it. I want the strength to, to prop up, but I also want the strength to yield such that the shin angle defines the end range of, of connective tissue and strengthen it from that length. And then I did just so much training of my foot. I used to collect cowboy boots and my pinky toe lived under my fourth toe such that the crease of skin was just as hard as the toenail. Mm. <laughs> and now my feet are these like super, you know, aboriginal type things. They're like this. And I grew two foot sizes in the process of doing that. Um, I defined three arches in the feet. Yep. So arches. the first arch, as I define it, is the first arch is the lateral arch between the calcaneus and the back of the fifth. There's a big chunk of meat there that I prioritize getting that strong. And strong is essentially defined as, can I bear pressure whilst maintaining the maximum extension and spread of the toes? So if I put pressure in, you, you're good, and when you're weak, you're gonna buckle and do that. So I wanna have the tendinous strength and, you know, and, and pain tolerance, pain's weakness leaving the body, to be able to just stand on that on the broom handle or you know like the dowel or whatever and you start with the bigger cylinder and you work your way down so that was the first arch and then second arch i basically defined that as transverse here where i wanted to get this direction here so it's like pulling on a sock i don't want to put you know put put uh the sock not tight i want my spider-man suit to be here so if I were going in both directions, the emphasis was always back to proximal in that strength and release, and then roll to here and there. And then the third arch was that medial arch where now you're on an angle and you're you're making that just resilient so that it has the it, it has the maximum yield so that you're operating on structure rather than muscular contraction. And it's very interesting how the athlete with the flat feet, they tend to be fast as can be because they don't deform as much as the guy with the high arch that when he hits, there will tend to be more yeah. yield and transformation, yeah, which is more time on ground. So, and I think feet are so different in everybody. And sometimes there's going to be a structural issue, which is not going to correct. So you, you have situations where I don't think there's any hard and fast rule with the feet because, le I mean, let's say somebody's got an extra bone or somebody's got some bone thing that like just puts it out of position. It doesn't mean that you don't strengthen it, but it does mean that there may be certain structural limitations that don't let them be ideal. And in that case, maybe they do play better with it out. Could they play better with it in? I think both sides is what you want. You want the internal and the external, but it's it. I will put together foot program at a later point in time. Um, right now, it's only been you know something that I have personally practiced. And if you really dig my stuff and you've gone into the hands, well, then you know the feet is 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 next. But I will say that. Two beats of balance on each foot is what I'm looking for. So I want to have a first beat of balance where I can be on the outside. And then I want another beat of balance where I can be on the inside. 
and I don't have to change. So my center stays centered and I get two beats of balance. And then I want to be able to shift to the other one with two beats of balance. So in a sense, I have the balance of two feet on one foot. And there's certain angles of the shoulders in relationship to the foot that are very advantageous for that figure eight and that sweep and those arcs. And the move that works the best with the rope to really cultivate this and, and actually be able to do it, actually be able to do it, where there is never a moment of hesitation. There is never even an instance of being out of balance because if you're out of balance, you're out of balance and you're not ready right now. And that's the underhand alternating sneak where the rope's coming, like the rope is looping over you and then you're whipping it out and then the rope's coming over you and whipping it out and it gives you these like one, two, same foot, drop the other foot, one, two, drop the other foot. And it's been exceptionally effective for my balance. Like I, I can move exceptionally well because I've done the work on the strength of the feet, but I've also organized the coordination. And I'm also a believer that if the upper body isn't right, there's nothing the feet can do to save you. So if your upper body's like out of balance or you're uprooted, well, a strong foot doesn't matter in that moment. You need, to, you need to be sending that force down and funneling it down to the foot, and now the foot matters. So I know it's a long answer, but that's sort of my history with feet. In short, yes. Um, no, I, I do. Uh, the amount of athletes that we've seen, you know, just from really shitty shoes and coming in and working, getting to take it off. I mean, I was always under the impression that a higher arch was better from just a mechanical standpoint that, you know, as you land the springing effect, but we, um, I can't remember the podcast we had on, I was searching for it, but we had a guy come on who was a biomechanics expert and he's like, it was actually more force bleed effect. So they've seen, uh, you know, sprinters that tend to have almost flatter feet tend to be able to generate more force. Um, he thought that the spring was actually better, uh, you know, and thought that it probably evolved that the fact that we didn't wear, um, you know, not wearing shoes, but also more change of direction. He thought that the spring ended up working better, that he thought that for vertical speed, flatter feet, and I'm, I'm trying to pull from memory, but that the springing and the arch effect was better for some more change of direction, like in terms of like trying to hunt down an animal that had, you know, being able to mm. cut and move, you know, with the barefoot. So yeah, there's a, a lot of stuff. And then when you look at the shoes, um, uh, like I have, you know, and I did this with my kids, like I didn't buy them shoes for the first two years. And they walked around barefoot and they only wore like uh, those stupid rubber kind of big shoes they slipped into. And uh, they have the best feet now, like every one of them. And then my one daughter got into horseback riding. So she wears these riding boots and like all the work we did, like now I got her on all these band stuff and toe spreaders because the shoes, like they just don't mm. make a wide toe right. box riding boot. So we have to do a bunch of stuff for her. But uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, the, the, the idea that, you know, a, a flat foot is, is faster is sort of, you know, heresy in the immediate gut reaction, the reflexive reaction from an exercise guy, right? So it's like, okay, but we, we have to be able to approach issues without the fear of being incorrect. Sure. And so once you're correct, once you're correct, it's not religion. I mean, you need to still hold the possibility that there could be better information sure. or, you know, more nuance within the category of correct even. Right. And, 
and I think it that curiosity comes from confidence. So I am like I'm blown away, impressed by you because we've never spoken with you know each other before, and we just knew each other through the fact that you know you train some jujitsu guys, and my right hand man loves you. <laughs> That's all I knew, and to hear you speak, you speak with an authority of having been there and having doing it, and I can suss out whether someone knows what they're talking about or not instantly. And so again, that's why I think this is tip of the spear conversation because I know the confidence I have in my understanding, I just know because I can do. And if we touch someone, we make them better. It's just, boom, it's the empirical measurement that is the proof in the pudding. And I don't care that Dumbo has a feather. As long as he's flying, I don't care what the input is, right? I mean, it doesn't have to make sense if it works. Yeah. And then when it makes sense, now you can target in and dial it in to make it even better. So it is important to understand it intellectually if you're going to advance it. But ultimately, you got to get over the fact that maybe your teacher in that little PowerPoint presentation didn't exactly educate you correctly. And maybe you're off the mark. And there is only one X, and that X is balance. What, uh, Without balance, I don't give a shit what you got. Yeah, no, I mean, balance, coordination, and all that gets hyper-focused with a platform of strength. Um, I was going to hit you on two things. One, uh, you had something on your website that was the, the WEC method rules for engagement. Rule one, egos do not belong. Uh, rule two, you know, and it seems like more like rules to yeah. live by. I'm going to... Uh, What I'm going to say on that is that, and I'm just revealing the truth, is like, that's not my edict. And that's, you know, that's some stuff that I think I'll have a hand in editing. We just redid our website and I don't have my hand because, listen, I got a monster ego. And it is, it ultimately boils down to the best idea wins. And so in that sense, egos don't matter, Right. Like, you're not going to overpower me with ego, but I do have an ego and I'm going to fight for my ideas. But if my idea doesn't win, well, then I'm not going to have an ego about it. I'm going to, you know, tuck my tail and say, OK, I'll, I'll follow that. Yeah, but so, uh, like that's the just the fact answer. that you're admitting <laughs> that you have an ego means that you have less of an ego. I've found that the people that have the biggest egos are the ones that can't even realize how big their ego is, uh, you know, and I think that if you've done the work yeah, but and mean, it's, confidence it's, it's, comes if, from if, it. If, you know, like you have to have like, well, the, I think here, here's, here's, here's a great example. Here, here's a great example. We were doing a qualification. Alex Canellis, who created Landmine University, yeah. lived it. He moved from Iowa City to San Diego to work at the lab and apprentice with me. I mean, you want to talk about honor, <laughs> right? Like he is unbelievable. And the things that I learned from him was basically this osmotic effect. Like he didn't have to say a word. I could just see the way he comported himself. And then I could sort of say, oh my God, like, wow. And he really helped me understand like the, the crown and how to get the absolute, you know, most as above, so below. And that predatory capacity. He, he was a state champion wrestler and then an offensive lineman at Iowa. And he had a weightlifting accident where the bar hit him in the head. He couldn't tie his shoes for a week. 
And that humbled them to say, my NFL dream is over. So I'm going to be my, the, the high school strength coach. And he knew how to make someone effective. So strong as an ox at moving people around because he's a wrestler. Mm-hmm. And Alex, you know, I, I, I was, I was, I was sitting with, like we were during a certification and one of the guys next to me is sitting there and I said to him, I said, you know, if I were fielding a football team, my first pick is Alex. He looked me dead in the eye and he goes, no, it's not. I am. And that's who you want as a teammate is you want the guy who believes he's the best. And the way that those alphas can get together is, oh, you don't play offensive line. You play cornerback, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? But the ego and the belief in yourself, if, if you can back it up, it ain't bragging type of a thing. And let's get over the fact that we have egos. And if we both admit that we have egos, then the egos can get along. Yeah. But it's the false representation because of some kind of, you know, the, the confused ego. That I mean, why is a man not allowed to be masculine, right? Everybody knows who's the truest alpha in the room. Lawrence Taylor was the fucking man on the Giants. And I don't care what you say. That guy was the biggest badass there was. I mean, it, you know, and okay, well, okay, you're more of a badass. Let's go see, right? Yeah. I mean, that was the best part about playing in the NFL. That was the best part about playing in the NFL. You got exactly, you knew exactly how good or bad you were every Sunday in front of millions of people for three hours. And it was by far the most addictive part of it was instant validation. And if it didn't work, then you get a chance to go back all week and, you know, try to do it again. And if you're not able to do it over and over again, you don't get to do it anymore and you got to go home. The respect, yeah, not for long, right? The respect that I got on the football field was because I was with, Injury or death was superior to failure. I was willing to sacrifice myself, and I played in an era where this is what you hit with, right? I was trying to break my helmet, and that's just a concussion was not an injury when I played football. Okay? Yeah, no, it was you just part of the bell deal. Rung. Yeah. yeah, that <laughs> you was got just your bell wrong. That was just called Tuesday. <laughs> Yeah, I always, I always joke that, uh, yeah, like when you can't see, you go cross-eyed, your bell's rung, all that. They were like, is that a concussion? No, that's just called Tuesday practice, dude. We're fine. Like, it's, uh, it's a different time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, but even if, it's a, even if it was a concussion, it, it, okay, so what? You ready to go back in? Yeah. Uh, the other thing I was going to hit you on uh, is the Busu ball gets a ton of hate. And it's become... Uh, like, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting Bo, say for Bosu, me. Say Bo. Oh, sorry. Bosu ball. What I call Bosu. Bosu ball. Uh, a lot of hate. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people attack <laughs> it forever. I, um, uh, I don't really get it. I mean, for me, like we said, it's just a tool. It's like being mad at a bar. Or, oh, I don't like this bar or this. And I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, maybe it's not right for you, but I mean, there's things that we use more often than we don't. Uh, you know, I think there's a practical application for everything. And that if you understand the mechanics, you can see where everything fits, but it's, uh, uh, the hate is unbelievable. I just, I think that's, uh, uh, something that you wrestle with. I just love to hear your thought on it. Listen, it, I have sharp claws. I can make a fist that is structurally superior to anything else you can arrange. And I have trained these talents with millions of strikes. These things here you could hit me with a fucking bat, okay? And this thing's going to be all right. 
I can take my hand here and you can smack me in the head as hard as you want. I'm not going to concuss. All right. So that intensity is the intensity with which I took my anger and I'm not going to deny my anger. What I'm going to do with my anger is I'm going to take that black cloud and that coal and I'm going to compress that shit until it turns crystal clear like a diamond. So that's why I now I've come to appreciate the haters almost, almost rather than just hate them back. Because if unless you're a trained fighter, I will kick the fucking shit out of you. And I don't care what your goddamn bench press squat deadlift is. I will fucking destroy you. So that was my internal mechanism to take that injustice and turn it into rocket fuel where I took my New Jersey. You're going to kill me because I ain't quitting because I won't lose. That's New Jersey. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. So I don't care. Like I, if I'm the squirrel, I'm going to thrash you up, right? I don't care that I get hit by the shovel. So that was my interpretation and res internal response to the haters. And I did not say anything for, for, for more than 10 years. I didn't say anything because I knew that that would just be fuel for the fire for them to beat me up too. And then when I discovered propulsors, right, this double down effect that you can actually train yourself to move like Dion and Randy and the rest when you know that it's two down, two down, two down, I thought, holy shit, I'm going to be able to shove that down their throat and shove it up the rear and meet them in the center. And it doesn't work that way because that cognitive dissonance and willful ignorance, and as long as you have a platform that is you know, greater, well, you can just ignore the guy here who's got better. And I went through a, a phase where I played this character, Uncle Wack. I was saturated in THC. I had like this scruffy beard. I had two glasses on and I just thought I was going to be able to overpower the industry with the truth. And I acted like a jerk. I deleted 5,000 posts off my Instagram because I don't deny that I did it, but I didn't want the next person coming in to see that. So I shaved again. I, you know, conduct myself in a manner where you're not going to think I'm completely insane, but that hatred and the unfairness, I hate bullies so much that it's a visceral hatred and I'll let God forgive because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not that big. And eventually I do believe that I will be able to make a contribution that is undeniable and my ultimate revenge at the end of the day when I can release the anger for good is they're doing my shit and they're better for it and they have no choice. That is the summation of the bashing of the BOSU ball. And what just this week or last week, Joe DeFranco, OG Joe DeFranco, New Jersey guy, he made a post that said from Bosu Basher to Bosu Bencher. And he's like, I'm going to tell you the truth. The Bosu ball is fantastic for bench press. It's the way I do it. No shoulder pain whatsoever. I'm from New Jersey. It's still my favorite exercise. And that kind of qualification He's what he's doing is he's giving those haters the permission to jump off that hate train.
And at some point, there's a critical mass where it's no longer cool and endearing to bash the BOSU ball, right? Yeah. The fact that 10, if you comb the internet today, there's going to be 10 posts somewhere that say how bad it is. It's just, it's every single day. And because I invented it, I was very sensitive to it. And I would say something to like, yo, man, they bash my BOSU ball all the time. He's like, what are you talking about? People love the BOSU ball. Yeah, millions do, but thousands don't. And the thousands who don't are the guys who influence the people that rains down on people. Yeah. So that's the <laughs> that's the, uh, the painted wall of Bosu bashing. It it's not fair, and it's gonna end. Dude, uh, I am excited to see how it all ends. I dude, I was as I was clicking around, uh, <laughs> just trying to do research for it. Like the amount of hate and uh, I, like. <laughs> I don't try to give any credence or, or any attention into like, you know, like bashing and that I find, I find it to be like, there's only a finite amount of time that I have each day. And if I choose to fill my cup with like a lot of negative hatred bullshit for people that are just casting stones to cast stones, it just ends up kind of sucking away my time. And, uh, you know, like one of the, the best pieces of equipment that we've ever come across is the bamboo bar, you know, where you basically, uh, I got from Louis Simmons where the bar is a fiberglass yeah. and we're able to hook up kettlebells yeah. and bands and there's like an oscillating effect and it's worked tremendously for shoulder rehab and also to get our, our fighters much stronger. And, uh, you know, it has a similar effect. I mean, people, you know, can't speak enough and the greatness of West side for it, but yet, you know, all of a sudden you do a push up on a boosie ball and next thing you know, you have AIDS or herpes or, you know, venereal disease. So it's, uh, it's it's interesting how things kind of fall in and out. Your but, leprosy. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, your legs are going to fall off. Your car's going to get stolen. So it was interesting going through it. But um, I think it's fascinating. I'm really looking forward to you guys coming out and learning more about it. And uh, you know, it's it's kind of fortuitous how things happen where I kind of get stuck into this jujitsu deal and approach with these young fighters and have seen such growth within them. And you know, you're kind of on the you know out in San Diego on the same kind of tree with the Abero brothers. So it's great to meet you, and I'm stoked that you came on Power Athlete Radio. This was a real honor and a privilege. And like I said, I'm just impressed, impressed, impressed. And isn't it cool that it, it's jujitsu, the, you know, novice, <laughs> novice. A bunch of that, shitty that white belts. Unites us together and, you know. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's Shondi a nice joke. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for tuning in. Another episode of Power at the Radio. <laughs> See ya. This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, Go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq.